I want you to take your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 20. Today we're going to conclude the Tender Commandments. Before Ron Rerick became a Christ follower and an evangelist, actually, uh, he extorted a million dollars from a major airline. After picking up the money at the site that was supposed to be set up, uh, he was in the front seat of his car with the briefcase full of cash. And as he began to count away, he had one nagging thought. It wasn't, oh, now what's going to happen if I get caught? It wasn't, how can I make sure and get away with this? This was his nagging thought. This isn't enough. I should have asked for more. Exodus chapter 20 Verse 17 says this. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his maidservant or his manservant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And we, we come to this last commandment, and it's probably the one that is taken the least serious. And it is probably one that is broken as much as any of the others. It is... Well, it's, it's almost applauded in our culture to get, to get, to get, to gain. And as you read the commandment here in Exodus, you'll notice all that it includes, the wife, the kids, the family, the house, the goods, anything that was used to make profit or to use for work to gain. Now, now hear me as I start this. I say this whenever I talk about money, whenever I talk about goods, there is nothing wrong with having. Would you tell the person next to you, it's all right to be a multimillionaire, it's all right to have a lot, and it's also all right to be in poverty. Tell them. Make sure they know that. It's good. I pray that you have a lot if you can handle it. There's nothing wrong with having. The issue is always the heart behind it that would come to get a grip over us or control over us. Because as we understand, it can lead to a lot of problems. And it can really can lead people attitudinally to live in a way that benefits self and their own personal needs. And it begins to focus on short-term satisfaction versus long-term values. What does covetousness define? What does it mean to covet? But really, the essence of it means to want more of what one already has enough of. For instance, (laughs) most of you know I play golf. Can I tell you something? Uh, This is probably about, mm, I'm going to say one half of all of my golf balls. Now you're thinking, uh, he is a covetous man. (laughs) Or a hoarder, I don't know which. Uh, But I have plenty, you know something, I'm not playing good golf right now, but when I play golf, I don't lose many golf balls. I have enough golf balls to last me through eternity, I think. Because I know in heaven I won't lose any. But I... Uh, This is my collection. The only reason I didn't bring all of them to really show you how many I have is because they're holed up in a pod and I couldn't get to them. 
this would be a microcosm of coveting. I have more golf balls than I'll ever need, and yet there's still something in me. Sometimes when I'm playing golf with somebody, I just want to, oh, I got to get the newest and the latest. I got to find them. I'll never pay for them. Lord forbid that. But that's what coveting does. It needs more and more of what you already have. It's an unhealthy desire to acquire more and, and, and more. It goes beyond admiring what others have to desiring what they have or what uh, something is out there. It might be a position. Uh, it might be a success. It may not lead to literally taking from somebody, but it's a heart issue. Because that heart issue over time can begin to resent what others have been blessed with. You can begin to become jealous of what somebody else has. And then it begins to affect the way you relate to that person or the people around you. Now hear me, because sometimes when I talk about these things, uh, I just take for granted that people know this. Take, for instance, retirement. People, when I'm done, then you're going to say, well, okay, if I shouldn't get more and more into my retirement, does that mean I shouldn't save for retirement? No, absolutely not. But it does mean keep balance and perspective as you plan for retirement. That you make sure you're taking care of other things, kingdom things, as you prepare for retirement. Listen, I am not going against any sound financial advice. What I'm really talking about is a heart issue. And I want to oh, hear this too, that it doesn't matter if you are well off or if you are not well off. This can apply to you wherever you are on the financial continuum. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 12. He said, take care, protect yourself against the least bit of greed. Why? Because your life is not defined by what you have, even if you have a lot. Now, Jesus followed that statement with this powerful parable of a man who had so many material goods, it was necessary to build more and bigger barns to hold all his stuff. And his whole focus was, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I have to do this because I have this. Now, his financial advisor would have said, wow, that's wise. His culture would have said, oh, my, he's a blessed man of God. Uh, but the God of the universe, creator God, called him a fool. Why? Well, well because he was continually laying up treasures for himself and neglecting the kingdom of God. He neglected going beyond himself. So, so the essence of breaking this command is often found in lies from the enemy. And, and every one of us deal with these periodically, ongoingly, some of us, where the enemy of our soul will say something like this. God's holding out on you. Or God doesn't want you to have the best. God doesn't want you to enjoy life. You know why? I mean, he's just the heavenly prude, the cosmic killjoy. He wants to keep you from all the good stuff. But isn't that the first lie that went to Adam and Eve? Remember, he said, don't, don't you know, take from that tree. Go ahead. It'll be good for you. As a matter of fact, you'll probably become wiser and more like God. 
And that's a lie that we all have to face today. The enemy will come to you and say, if you really want to be fulfilled, do this. If you want to really be fulfilled, experience that. Remember from the beginning, we've been, we called these the tender commandments because they're not so much edicts from on high as they are tender, loving commandments from a father who says, I want to give to you. I want to bring before you guardrails of grace. And as we've gone through these, really, I hope you begin to understand and the application of them. They're not simple precepts, but they're things you can plan and build your life around. They don't hold us back. They don't keep us from things. But you see, when our desires and our covetous ways kick in, because that's how we've kind of grown up, get, have, you need more. We forget that God's word really is the guardrails of grace. His commands, his precepts, his principles are there to protect us. And what do we do? Well, we default to our own personal desires and we want to meet our own needs instead of looking around and considering others around us or what God desires for us. And pretty quickly, when that thinking begins to move in, what happens? Uh, dissatisfaction. I, I, I see the carnage of this quite frequently. How many times do I see single people? Frankly, they just get tired of being single. So they want to take a shortcut. They want to kind of skip and jump over God's rails of grace. Well, let's head to the singles bar and see what I can find. Let's give that a shot. Or they say, I'm just going to give myself to this person because well, I think they're it. Only to find out, once they've given themselves over, they may not be it. But you know, you can't drive a car without test driving it. You ever heard that one, huh? And we begin to get these lies in our head. People, well, Phil, I, I just, I need a new marriage. I need a new start. I want some freedom. This ain't working out. And they begin to covet freedom or covet having another relationship, something they already have. God would say, stay and work on it. See, God knows the devastation that this command, breaking this command, can bring. Father knows best because when one covets, it can lead to a few things in your life. First, it can lead to unwanted burdens. Many of us here, you're probably familiar with the story of David who coveted his neighbor's wife, Bathsheba. And because of his power, because of his, his position as the king of Israel, he simply said, bring her to me. And what does he do? He ends up having an affair with her. Listen to what he writes after spending time with her and gets confronted by his sin and what takes place. He says in chapter 50, uh, Psalm 51, verse 1 says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Why? Uh, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. He says, wherever I go, it's there. God, forgive me. And God will. God does. But unfortunately, uh, there are, well, there's consequences and things that take place. See, David, for the rest of his life, was burdened by his actions stemming from this covetous heart. 
the years that followed this action led him to live a, a, a heart-wrenching, heart-breaking life filled with emotion as he watched the wreckage of his family through rape, incest, murder, betrayal, and rebellion. And he saw that for the rest of his life. Now hear me. Never forget, in the New Testament, not the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, it says that David was a man after God's own heart. There's always forgiveness. But as we understand with the Ten Commandments, there's always consequences. David ended his life with a broken heart. God knows the burdens that come when we break his commandments, when we go against his ways and his will. Imagine the hurt of a parent. When a child goes to school and tell, was to tell his teacher, the principal, oh, my home, we just don't have any food. I hardly have a good bed to sleep in. My clothes, I don't have enough clothes to wear. They're always dirty. What kind of a burden would that place on a parent if they had the principal or the teacher call them and say, wow, this is what we're hearing. Because you had a discontented, ungrateful, untrusting child. That'd break your heart. I, I wonder how often our Heavenly Father feels when He sees us living with envy. The need for more. Always wanting more. Never satisfied with what He has provided for and blessed us with. Because, oh really, we deserve more, don't we? I should have more. I mean... Joe Bob over there's got a lot. It can bring burdens to our lives. Secondly, an unhealthy perspective. The things we hold in our hands will ultimately be loosed from our hands. If not here, when we pass into eternity, did you know that when you die, you can't take anything with you? That's why there is never a U-Haul behind a hearse. You know, you drive, and it's not going to be there. I've, ne I've done a lot of funerals. And I have yet to see a U-Haul or one of those pods or anything be, you know, transferred to the cemetery because you don't get to keep it with you. You leave it here. Second Corinthians 4.18 says this, there's far more here than meets the eye. The things we see now are here today, but they're gone tomorrow. But the things that we can't see now will last forever. See, if you don't have, you, you, we have to develop an eternal perspective. Many of you know, I just found out today, some may not know this, but um, when Trina and I came home from convention and vacation July 1st, uh, we'd landed in Phoenix and we'd received news that our house had flooded. And so we have literally been, not in our house, we've been living somewhere else since uh, June 19th. And we probably have, could be two more weeks. People ask this, well, how did you feel? What did you do? Well, we had an hour and 45-minute plane trip to kind of process and then a 30-minute drive. And so by the time we got to the house, it was kind of like decompressed and you just get to see the reality of everything that's going on. And, and, and please, I, I don't want to sound overly spiritual because I'm, I'm not really. But as we drove away from the house that night we just kind of talked and we just said, you know what? It's only stuff that can be replaced. It's just 
stuff. And what we realized is, okay, so we lost it, some of it here. Big deal. You know what? We're going to lose it all someday. It's a perspective. You can't take it with you. And see, without an eternal vision, loved ones, you'll live with a temporal perspective that is always looking for something new, the newest gadget, the latest upgrade. You understand this. It costs more to have more. We have great insurance, but it's costing us a lot of money to get back into our house. It's funny because uh, most of our house literally is in a pod. And we're thinking, my gosh, we have too much stuff. And Trina goes, yeah, look at your golf balls. I mean, come on. <laughs> Listen, that would fill a room. But, but we're really looking to, we're going to have nice stuff, but we're going to simplify. We're going to cut back. Because, see, the Bible is clear. The more you have the more you spend up to the limits of your income, Ecclesiastes 5.11. See, God calls us, loved ones, to be stewards, not hoarders. He calls us to be steward, not people who covet and always want and have to have more. How many of you remember fondly the early days of your life or the early days of your marriage? Trina and I give the old, you know, we're older now, so we give the stories. Well, when we were younger, when we first got married, well, we, we were. We had those stories because we were going to college. And we sat in this little apartment. And for our TV trays were cardboard boxes. The only furniture we had in the living room was a recliner that Trina bought me for my birthday. I sat there like a king with my cardboard, you know. <laughs> it was way cool. And then what we'd eat for dinner, probably three or four nights a week, we'd buy a 10-pound bag of potatoes, a couple pounds of hamburger, and five for a dollar shillings gravy. I think it's still the same. And, uh, and we'd mix this stuff up in kind of a goulash, and it was great. And sometimes we think back and we go, oh, man, wasn't that something? That was really fun. Now, at the time, it was like, oh, I can't wait to get a job, get out of school, you know. <laughs> Then I got a job, and I said, I can't wait to go back to school. But you know what I'm talking about. When you really understand the simplicity of life, it just makes it easier. But a lack of contentment, covetous can also lead to deception and destruction. Let me read a couple of passages to you. I've taught on these recently, so you can kind of pick them up, or at least the one in the last year, but I just want to allude to it. I want you to hear it again. First Timothy. First Timothy chapter 6. Verses 6 through 10. Paul's mentoring his son Timothy in the faith. And this is what he says. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Wow. How many of us could say with just food and clothing, I would be content? Well, and golf balls, you know, and my computer. And, you know, can you imagine how the ands would begin to get bigger? 
But people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. Notice what James says. I want to... James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 says this. Oh, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within? See, nobody sees those battles until they come out in a battle. You want something, but don't get it. So you kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. So you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. See, one of the biggest causes of conflict and destruction in marriage and relationship is what? Around money. How many times have I done a funeral only to follow up with the family to say, how's it going? And they say, it'd be great, except for the estate. See, most marriages have to work out how they will deal with money, resources, and finances. In my premarital counseling, I spent a lot of time on this. I encourage couples to have goals, set financial goals. But remember this, in anything in life, goals never become God's. They have to be pliable. They have to be workable because things change. Life happens. Dreams develop. And it can be easy to miss life and the most important thing in life, which is people, family, relationships, not things. But it can not only be destructive, but it can also be very deceptive. Turn over to Psalm 106, if you would. This is a great psalm. Psalm 106, listen to this. Psalm 106, starting at verse 12, says this. It's talking about the children of Israel. They've They've come out of Egypt now. This is what's taking place. Verse 12. Then they believed his promises and sang his praise. That's Exodus 15 where they brought him out of Egypt and they crossed the sea and they drowned the Egyptians' armies. And they're going, woohoo, God's great, God's good. Uh, but verse 13 starts with a but. But they soon forgot what he had done and they did not wait for his counsel. In the desert, they gave into their craving. In the wasteland, they put God to the test. So he gave them what they asked for. And he sent upon them leanness of soul. Have you ever kind of been there where you've wanted something? See, God here has provided for his people as they come out of captivity and oppression for 400 years. He provides for them in the desert water, food, just enough for each day except for on Sunday Then he provides for two days. But the scripture says they wanted more. And in the desert, they gave in to their craving and demanded from God and complained to God. And it says they experienced leanness of soul. Have you ever just craved for something and demanded something and you finally got it and then it just left you empty? Maybe for two years you're paying on it or three years and you're wondering how in the heck did I get into this? See, sometimes that's what our craving and our coveting 
will do. Have you ever wondered what it would like be to win the lottery? Yeah. Did you know that a high percentage of lottery winners end up going broke in a short amount of time? Because, see, they have such a poverty mentality, they can't handle the, the infusion of income, and they end up spending it. There's been lots of specials on lottery winners. Well, let me just tell you about one. Uh, there's an article about uh, this, this couple that won $48.6 million in the lottery. After winning, the, women said, the woman said this, we had one month of good times and three years of misery. She said, I would trade it all for a normal life. It's not worth it. Health and happiness is what I've always wanted. The woman's name was Lynette Nichols. She's now a recovering alcoholic, and she was a tranquilizer abuser. She's had three pacemaker uh, operations since her big lottery win. Her husband, Jimmy Nichols, filed for divorce several months after the big win, and the legal bills that they had topped over $200,000 on both sides. See, it's deceptive, and it can be destructive. Listen, loved ones, our value and our self-worth can never be based on our net worth. And sometimes we look around and we think, well, if I have this portfolio, if I have this much, if I have these things, that's where my true value is. No. Your true value, your true worth is in the amazing truth of this life-altering, bowled-over-by-grace person, Jesus Christ, that when he comes and he begins to change your heart, your desires... Rebuild your life from the inside out. That is the essence of your true net worth. I say this all the time to people. There is no person, there is no possession, and there is no profession that will ever fulfill you for the long term. I'm sorry. And some of us that have been married, if you are healthy and you are growing in a healthy relationship, you will have learned that person cannot be your total fulfillment. They can complete you, but they can't take everything over for you. They can't be your all in all. You have to bring something to the table as well. And ultimately, the only one that will bring fulfillment and satisfaction to your life is the person of Jesus Christ. He is the one that will make you healthy so you won't be dependent upon other people to fulfill what they cannot fulfill in and of themselves. Well, what's the antidote to overcoming this covetousness? To living free from being a person that covets? Well, the first, the antidote is really contentment. That you live a life of contentment. Because see, contentment diminishes comparisons. When you are content where you were, or when you are content where you are, when you look ahead and say, I can be content wherever I am, like Paul who said in Philippians chapter 4, it doesn't matter, I've abounded and I've been poor. I've been rich, had a lot, and I've been poor and had little. I'm still content. And he wrote that from jail. It wasn't his circumstances that dictated and determined what was going to take place in his life. He said, he uses the word twice, I am content. But you see, our, we get into comparisons. It's easy to look around and get into a 
when and then mentality. Have you ever done that? When I get this, then I'll be happy. When I get into this relationship, then this will be great. When I get this, my life will be fulfilled. And that's what our culture screams to us every day. Notice what Paul says about comparison in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 12 through 13. He says, For we dare not class ourselves to compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond measure but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. Now, why would Paul, why would God speak through Paul to say, be careful of comparison? Well, Paul goes on to explain why. Because he says, each one of us has been given a sphere, an area, Some of your Bibles will say a lot, a place in life. And he says, if you compare with other people, you might compare yourself to somebody that has a mansion on the hill and you've got a little, you know, trailer in a park. And you're going to say, well, that's what I want. And you compare yourself and believe that's what you should have when God says, no, I want you to be content right there. Or you might be making $50,000 a year, but you see someone that's making $200,000 a year in your office and you work harder than they do and you think you should get that. Not that you can't ask for it, but if you allow that to become your driving force, maybe the lot that God has for you is 50000 and you'll begin to get into trouble if you go outside of the sphere and the lot that God has for you because you begin to compare. And I want, I covet, I, I, I need. Comparing leads us to look around and to determine the desire, I want more. And when you look around, and if you have more than somebody, what's it lead to? Pride. If you look around and you have less than, what do you do? Then you become covetous, envious, jealousy. But when you live with confusion, contentment that will always trump comparisons because you won't have to look around you'll be able to rejoice with those who have and you'll be able to be and speak encouragement and maybe and bless those who don't have you'll just be happy content where you are uh, david robinson who's a strong christ follower he was this nba superstar basketball player for the san antonio spurs He tells a story about watching Michael Jordan. As Michael Jordan won his first NBA, they they were peers. They were contemporaries in the NBA. He says, I remember watching Michael Jordan hugging and caressing and kissing this championship trophy. He says, as I was watching them, I was thinking that piece of metal would validate my life and my career. But he goes on to say, here I am. I got five cars, two houses, more money than I ever thought I'd have in a lifetime. What more could I ask for? But here's Michael Jordan. He has more than me. And I'd like to have some of the things that he has. What I had should have been plenty. 
But no matter how much I had, it didn't seem like enough because material things can never satisfy our deepest needs. Get this. And that's when I started to realize how much I needed God. He was a multi-multi-millionaire. One of the greatest players in the NBA. And he still wanted more. And that's what drove him to say, I need God. Listen to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Verse 18 through 20. I'm just going to read verse 19. It says this, Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot, his sphere, and be happy in his work, this is a gift from God. See, contentment will bring you to the place where you can appreciate and rejoice in what you have because you know it all comes from the hand of God. It's a gift. Sure, some of you bring a lot of skill and acumen and know-how and knowledge to the table, but it's all systemic to God. People have been... Uh, saying to Trina as I listen, well, boy, that's not such a bad deal. You get a whole new place. And we do, and we're thankful. Listen, one of my learnings this summer is this, is have good insurance and don't leave home without it (laughs) because it really is important. And we are, you know, we're blessed that way. But everyone says, well, what, Trina, you know, boy, you're going to get a new house. And I love what she said. She goes, you know what? I was totally happy with the house I had. And we were. We rejoice in what God has given us because you know what we understand this it's all systemic to him. And see when you really begin to live with contentment contentment will lead you to release. If you remember one of the counterpoints when we talked about stealing in the New Testament talked about that we're to work not just for ourselves but so we don't have to steal but so we can help others. Listen to what 1 Timothy 6 says, 17 through 19. Commend those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty nor to trust in uncertain riches but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Tell the person next to you, God gives us stuff to enjoy. That's not a bad thing. Go ahead. It's a good thing. Tell them you can enjoy your stuff. Uh, But then he says, let them do good. So, so tell the person now next to you while you're enjoying it, do good. Because it goes both ways. Why? Let them do good that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. See, loved ones, God wants us to enjoy what we've worked hard for, what we've been blessed with. But never forget this. He also wants you to employ it and use it for his high purposes of what? Ultimately, to reach this world. I I am, I'm not going to say amazed, I'm blessed 
as I sit and talk to Creeksiders over the last six months, I can't tell you if I really stop to think about how many people I've sat across the table from and they've shared with me some of the things that God has led them to do because of what they're learning about financial stewardship. Oh, they give to the church. But then they'll drop a lot of cash towards something or for somebody to help them. And I go, God, thank you. That you are giving people, you are growing Creeksiders, this church, in the ability not to be hoarders and grabbers and grippers, but to be givers and releasers. Because Jesus said in Matthew 13, 22, the deceitfulness of riches can crowd out his word in our lives. No wonder God concludes this top 10 commands with don't covet. We've all seen it. When I see people who give, they're happy. It's almost like they're saying, Pastor, give me something else to give to. Okay, we'll do that. Because they understand that there's a flow of blessing that as they are givers and releasers, and they've talked about how it always comes back. You know why that's the Bible? Listen to what Acts 20, 25 says. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. A number of us here are blessed with the affliction of affluence. And I think the Lord, we just want to remind you today not to live beyond your means, but to be a kingdom blessing through your means. Now, this is pretty silly and stupid, but I'm going to do it anyway. Just listen, after service, come up and get as many golf balls as you want. And if I run out, I'll do a rain check on you. There's some good golf balls up here. But you know, I, I'm a, I am blessed. Not because of things, but it's a shame that I hang on to these golf balls and not give them to you wonderful people. Come up. After service, help yourself. Now, now contentment's a process. First Timothy 6, 6 through 7 says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. Listen, hear this. Some of you watch Christian TV, and I'm not against it per se, but too many faith teachers say that godliness will bring gain. Uh-uh. It says contentment with godliness is how it happens. We have a lot of faith teachers out there that say, listen, God wants you to be, well, he wants you to be rich. He wants you to have all the things that you want. And that is not biblical truth. That's why it talks about in the Bible. Listen, some of us are 10 talent people. Some of us are five. Some of us are one. We're just scrambling to make it happen. Never forget that. Again, living within the context of where God has given you. God will always give us what we need, not always what we want. Psalm 84, verse 11 says this, no good thing will God withhold from them that walk uprightly. He's not going to give you everything you want. He's not going to give you a bigger house, a nicer car, just because you pray and want it. 
Now, if you need it, you might get it. See, Philippians 4, 10 through 13 says, the secret and the key to contentment is this. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. See, when Paul talks about being content in that passage, he's making right decisions, but he's putting the kingdom first. And his secret is, he says, I've learned it. He's had to go through and experience life, make good decisions, and probably some bad ones that taught him as much as the good ones. But he says, ultimately, Christ is my source. Hebrews 13.5 says this, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For the Lord himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We can practice the admonition of being content uh, because of the promise at the end of the verse that says, Jesus will never leave us or forsake us. To the degree to which I understand that the Lord is with me and to the degree that I enjoy his fellowship intimately and intensely will determine how much I can experience contentment continually. But see, it's all tied in to a relationship with Christ. You know why I could have cardboard boxes and TV trays? Because I lived with Trina. She didn't demand from me. She didn't have to have this or that. And I hope she would say this too, that the reason that I could be content there is because I had her. We were so in love. That's all that mattered. Now think about that. If you are growing and walking with Christ and you're focused on him, can I tell you something? You'll be content because you trust that he's never going to leave you or forsake you. You're going to trust that the decisions you make are right. And you can trust the fact that he loves you and cares for you. Well, the purpose of the Ten Commandments is what? It's not a checklist by do-gooders to say, okay, I'm doing that, I'm doing that. Because most of us would probably go, I'm doing that. But what we found out through the whole process is it's all about the heart, isn't it? See, Romans 3.20 says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law, by doing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Keeping these will not make you right with God. Remember what their purpose is? It's to lead you to, to show you your need of God. Because we can't keep these on our own. We don't have the strength or the power on our own. The tender commandments will lead us to either trust God or like the children of Israel to test him. But Jesus changes everything. There was a wealthy dad and his son. They had traveled together. The son was young and they, the dad was an art connoisseur. He collected expensive pieces. And so he wanted to bring his son into the business. And so they began to travel together. And the son grew greatly in his understanding of of the magnificent, magnificent and expensive pieces of art. They collected it together, and he taught this, the, the dad taught the son everything that he knew. Soon the country went to war, 
and the son was drafted. Some months into the battle, uh, the father got a telegram, the one that he dreaded, and it said, your son is missing in action. It was just a few weeks later that some men came to his door to announce to him and tell him that they were sorry, but your son died. But he died trying to save a few other soldiers in his squad. Well, distraught and lonely for weeks, going into months, it seemed like the art on his walls in all their expense and beauty just seemed to mock him. One day, though, there was a knock on the door, and this young guy comes to him, and he's got a package in his hand, and he says, sir, can I come in and talk to you? And he says, yeah, sure. Comes in, and he says, I was with your son the day that he died. Him and I and a few other people in our squad were trying to save some soldiers, and your son was a hero. And he says, I'm kind of an artist myself, and so I wanted to draw this picture and give it to you, your son. So he opened it up, and the father looked at it and realized very quickly it wasn't of high value other than the fact there was a great likeness to his son. And he said, thank you, sir. This is beautiful. I will mount it above the fireplace. So after some more small talk, the young man left, and the father did as he said he would do, and he began to move some of the most expensive pieces that he had and mounted right above the fireplace. Well, sometime later, as this man began to have some of the life brought back to him, the joy brought to him, he became ill and began to make out his will. And soon thereafter died. He had to take care of all of these paintings. To come to the auction, the auctioneer stands up and says, I want to welcome you today because this was a, a pretty high-class deal because of all the expensive artwork that he had. There's only one lone painting up there. It's got a veil on it, and he hits the gavel. The auction starts, and he's talking, and he says, here's the first painting. And it's of his son. And all these people are upset, and they're kind of screaming, how come this? We want, we want the good painting. What's of this boy? What's he doing to that? And the guy goes, the father's will said this, that this is the first painting that will be sold. And there is still unrest and upheaval. But finally they said, okay, let's get on with it. Do I have a bid for this painting? And it took a few minutes, and finally one guy said, yeah, let's get this thing over with. I was a neighbor. I knew the kid. I'll give 10 bucks for it. Auctioneer goes, okay, anybody else want to bid? Silence. Move on. Finally, he goes, going once, going twice. Sold to the man over here for $10. Walks over and gives him the painting, comes up, slams his gavel down and says, we're done. People go crazy. What do you mean we're done? We can't stop now. What about the rest of the paintings? And he said, it was in the Father's will that the one who gets the son gets it all. Hey, you hear that story, and you know what? It's really true for our life, loved ones. When you get the son, when you get Jesus Christ, you get everything. It's true for all of us. I can please the Father because of my relationship with Jesus. I can enjoy forgiveness of sin because of what we sung about today earlier nothing but the blood of Jesus. I can live in freedom because of the Son. I can experience eternal life because of the Son. I can live out the Ten Commandments because of the Son. I don't deserve anything.